You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Good morning, John McWhorter. How are you doing? Good morning, Glenn. How are you? I am fine. Uh, it's Glenn Lowry. It's the Glenn Show, but it should be the Glenn and John Show. Well, actually, it is the Glenn and John Show. Every other week, it's the Glenn and John Show. John gives me a week off between our conversations that allows me to talk to other people. <laughs> Bloggingheads.tv with my conversation partner, John McWhorter. We're here every other week. We're also at patreon.com forward slash Glenn Show. If you uh, support us at Patreon, you can get our post within 24 hours of them going up. Otherwise, you have to wait until the end of the week. Uh, we post every Monday. Um, and we're talking about all manner of things. I'm at Brown University. John is at Columbia University. We're the black guys at bloggingheads.tv. So good to be talking to you again, John. You too, Glenn. So what's up today? Well, uh, stuff comes over the transom. As you know, people write to us. They appeal to us. They share information. They tell stories. And recently, someone from the state of Oregon, is it not Oregon? I, sure um, hope I, I get say this right. Oregon. I think more people these days under a certain age say Oregon. I don't know about the Oregon, but Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, sent us a, um, uh, a memorandum, uh, an instruction booklet, a guide, a teaching guide on math education in the state uh, that had some features about how you do anti-racist math education that were very interesting. And you wrote about it in your newsletter. Everybody should, of course, subscribe to John's newsletter. com. Yes, please. It's free. It's free, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you can get um, his uh, postings by, uh, you know, increment of his new book that he's working on. John can do this better than I, but I, I, I like promoting John's work. Thank you. Thank you. Called The Elect. Uh, and it's about the anti-racism uh, mania that is uh, surrounding us and overtaking us, of which this Oregon, uh, that's what I say, uh, uh, math education uh, booklet is an example. Why don't you tell folks what that's about, John? Well, you know, this thing has been kind of bouncing around for a while, but apparently the people in Oregon who are in charge of education are thinking of taking it seriously. And it's this Good 80-page document that is making a claim that there is a need for math teachers to cleanse themselves of their unintentional racism, that there's a such thing as anti-racist math. Now, anti-racist math is partly calling attention to black mathematicians and calling black students' attention to the potential of being in STEM fields. All of that is fine, but that's not what most of this document is. This document actually outlines... These are serious people who outline explicitly that it is racist to teach math to black kids in a way that expects them to actually get the exact answers. And I'm, I'm not kidding. The document actually specifies, these are people with straight faces, that when you're teaching black kids, the anti-racist way of teaching is to teach them to think of math conceptually rather than as a matter of procedure which in this case, what they're talking about, what they fill out when they talk about, is that you don't necessarily need them to get the right answer and learn how to do math. You are doing fine if you're just teaching them what math is for, what the general aim is. 
And you're not supposed to have students raise their hand before they talk because there's something patriarchal about it. The teacher is not supposed to be superior to the students. The idea is not that the teacher teaches and the students learn, but that everybody learns together that students are not supposed to be put into helper, help e relationships because that implies hierarchy and that's racist. But most importantly, the idea is that we're supposed to wrap our heads around the notion that it is unfair to expect Black kids to actually get the answers. And that if they're not coming up to your expectations, it's racist of you to think that that's a problem. Rather, you should adjust your expectations and understand that it's racist to expect Black kids to actually do math. Now, isn't it interesting that Strom Thurmond could have written this? But instead, it's various living modern people who think of themselves as on the side of the angels who think of this as higher reasoning, as moral enlightenment, and more to the point, there are people in positions of power who are reading this pamphlet and actually taking it seriously. This do is you, bigotry uh, on the march, right? Uh, I, I just want to ask, do you actually, in the Substack uh, newsletter post, quote from the document itself? I do. <laughs> Extensively. Are you, are you in a position to be able to give us just the flavor of uh, what's actually being said in this uh, mm -hmm. teacher's guide. This is a guide to instructors who are in K through 12 or probably K through eight math classes about how to engage in anti-racist pedagogy while they're teaching math uh, to their students. And John's just given a summary, but I think if we can share some of that uh, explicit language, it'll, it'll help yeah. to focus this. I'm going to call it up here on my phone and Good. read from it. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a, a beautiful jargon involved in all of this exactly. these days. And so, let's see, one of it is um, <laughs> the framework for deconstructing racism in mathematics offers essential characteristics of anti-racist math educators and critical approaches to dismantling white supremacy in math classrooms by visualizing the toxic characteristics of white supremacy culture. Okay, that's that's nice. Um, at another point, we have to make sure that the kids are, quote unquote, reclaiming their mathematical ancestry. The idea is that we have to learn about black mathematicians in the past. We have to reclaim. OK, that that's fine. It's not and, OK. It, uh, excuse me for interrupting. I don't think that's OK. I'm happy to say why, so? I'm happy to say why later. <laughs> OK. And um, let's see. Where else do I quote? Um, let's see. Um, a focus on getting the quote unquote right answer, and it's in quotes, a focus on getting the quote unquote right answer is, and then in italics, perfectionism, or it's either or thinking, which is apparently racist. The idea that it's either one thing or the other, i.e. logic, discrimination, science, racist to expect black kids to think that way because we're just all so goddamn holistic. Apparently, that's that's the idea. So those are some direct quotes from the document. It's um, also paternalism and power hoarding. Requiring students to raise their hand before speaking can reinforce paternalism and power hoarding, in addition to breaking the process of thinking, learning, and communicating. And you know, something typical of documents like this, I've seen this sort of thing also argued about language arts in the past, is that often a lot of big words, but always a little bit... Awkward. It always reminds me of um, the old in living color routine where Damon Wayans used to do this, this um, 
this guy in, in prison and he's educated himself in prison and he's using all these big words. And a lot of the big words are scatological. He doesn't really know what he's talking about. Well, we have to menace the defecation of the, blah, blah, blah. and so here, you know, reinforce paternalism and power hoarding in addition to breaking the process of thinking. What are you breaking the process? What breaking the process of thinking, learning and communicating? That's the sort of thing that's in this. And I have to make it clear that I'm not cherry picking a few weird sentences. It's not that the extremism comes only at the end or somewhere in the beginning. This is the whole document. And it rigorously teaches these teachers to think about these things on a month by month basis. What are you doing in February? What are you doing in April? And all of this stuff is repeated again and again and again. It's truly unfortunate to see something like this, make it beyond, say, one crazy local PTA. You know, it's one thing for somebody to come up with this and pretend that it makes sense. For this to be treated as something of influence and substance is very post-June 2020. That's the problem that's going on now, that this thing is actually being taken seriously by people who've decided that this is a good thing for Black people, that they have to display their anti-racism by denying Black kids how denying Black kids the ability to master the exactness involved in doing math. I think this is truly a terrible thing. I feel condescended to as a Black person. And I think that everybody in the country should be on guard for their school board possibly taking any nonsense like this seriously. Well, I uh, support you 100% in that. Um, The reason I was objecting to the mathematical heritage stuff is I don't understand why a quote-unquote white mathematician who might have lived 150 years ago or 500 years ago isn't also a part of the heritage of a kid who sits in the West in the year 2021, a kid whose parents, whose grandparents, whose great-grandparents, and whose great-great-grandparents were born in the West. I mean, how is it that that's not our heritage? How quote unquote, our, how, how's that not our heritage? You can't be serious. My heritage is driven by the color of the skin of someone who lived in, on another continent in another century, um, in another culture, but they had the same color of my skin. And that's my heritage. So a kid who sits in Oregon in year 2021, a black kid, a kid who happens to be black or brown, thinking about mathematics is being instructed that they should attend to the color of the skin of the mathematician and that that's somehow their heritage. I mean, that's uh, as backward, it seems to me, as you, as you could possibly, as you could possibly get. And by the way, it's a dead end because, because, because as it happens, (laughs) uh, it was Leibniz, and Isaac Newton, who invented the calculus, as it happens, they were Europeans. You're going to lose that one. If, if you <laughs> if you start with a sheet of paper and a line down the middle of it in a column, their heritage, my heritage, their heritage, my heritage. If you're talking about the modern technological world, you're going to lose that one. Why would we teach our kids to, in effect, um, reduce themselves to the color of their skin when their intellectual inheritance is the total corpus of what humankind has been able to produce. So, so I, 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 I'm, you know, 
deeply troubled by that way of inducting young people into the world of ideas and, and the world of knowledge. They should, uh, they should learn um, Swahili or Yoruba as, as a way of approaching their uh, way of counting numbers. There's a black way of thinking about <laughs> solving algebra problems. There, there's black geometry. I mean, <laughs> it, it's it's frustrating in the extreme, <laughs> really. Yeah. Uh, so, and the other thing that I'm uh, exercised about here is anti-racist pedagogy in a fourth grade math class. Mm-hmm. There's barely enough time to actually teach them the multiplication tables, let alone to engage in what is an uh, ideological enterprise. I mean, there's no way I think of escaping that. This is a programmatic, ideological, political uh, indoctrination slash education enterprise. Uh, and uh, you barely have time enough to do the stuff that actually needs doing so that these kids can be empowered to be effective participants in the modern world. Um, and you're taking time to negate white supremacy in mathematics, which is connoted by things like the presumption that a problem has one and only one answer. You know, this, this, is, uh, this stuff has uh, gotten out of hand. You know, it's um, there's a general theme here, and I'm not sure how conscious people like this are of what they're proposing. You see this in all sorts of flashpoints with the race question in America. There seems to be this idea that there's this white person who is precise and persnickety and does things like math and does things like economics. And it's about the right answer and it's about close reasoning And there seems to be a contingent of people who think of that as somehow um, sinister, as inattendant to what you might think of as the essence of life. It seems that there's this white kind of person who's doing things like inventing optics. And that's nice because then you have glasses. But the better kind of person is this more essential person who's a good dancer and thinks holistically and is all about cooperation and doesn't think about individualism. There seems to be an idea that the Enlightenment was wrong. And this is a little bit different from the claim that critical race theory is anti-Enlightenment, which it is. The thing is, with critical race theory, we're talking about people who, in spite of themselves, were very close thinkers, very exact. The idea that the Enlightenment was wrong, you know, that comes from the French deconstructionists, etc. But there seems to be something a little more elemental that kind of is refracted through that, which is that somehow what people really should be is primitive. And I I can't help ranking it. The idea is that people become more empirical. People start reasoning more closely. I quite openly say that's an advance. Yes, there are some problems that can come out of the Enlightenment, but I get the feeling a lot of these people think that the Enlightenment mentality should be just one and that it's equal to being somebody who just kind of goes around jamming. And I reject this. I reject that you are making somebody unblack by making them reason closely and expecting them to be polite. And that's what a lot of this fight is over. It reminds me of something I've written about once or twice. I think I've said it here once, but it's something that you very rarely hear anybody say. But in 1998, 
at UC Berkeley when everybody was fighting about the end of racial preferences. I will never forget an undergraduate black woman who would have been about 20 years old, who was working in the diversity recruitment office. And remember, folks, I don't mean somebody 50. This is an undergraduate who's doing, you know, some sort of work study job or something, working to help bring black perspectives to Berkeley, one of the people who walks them around and makes them feel welcome. So she's an undergraduate black girl. And she openly said to me that they were worried at the office that black students who actually submitted dossiers that were the equal of whites and Asians, black students who wouldn't need any preferences, wouldn't, and this is exactly what she said, I remember it, I remember how the sun was shining through my office window, she said, they wouldn't be committed to being, they wouldn't be committed to a black community at Berkeley. What she actually meant was that black kids who are nerds aren't authentically, they aren't culturally black. She said it straight out. Nobody knew who I was at the time. And so she wasn't saying it to perform for me, but she also had no idea that I would be mentioning it 25 years later here. She was just talking to, you know, the then young black professor who she didn't know had any views that she didn't have. She said that. I don't think that that was a one-off. I think that that underlies a lot of what people like her think about what blackness is and a lot of white people do too. I think a lot of white people are disappointed by people like you and me because we're too precise. We seem like we wouldn't be good in bed. We you know, seem like they, we're, we're not. <laughs> wait, we're wait, not wait. <laughs> I do believe that that's what there is a certain kind of white woman. And <laughs> the idea is that we have no soul and I don't go for it. I don't like it. W.E.B. Du Bois would have not understood this in any way. And that's what some of this is. If you're precise, you're not black. I say, fuck that. Fuck it. Well, there are differences in style, right? I mean, white men can't jump, right? I mean, white people can't dance, right? I mean, white girls have flat bottoms, right? I mean, you know, there's swagger. There, there's, there's style. Mm-hmm. And if, if you look at American popular culture, you certainly see the outsized presence of African-Americans uh, in entertainment, in the music, mm-hmm. in the so on, uh, fashion, you know, what's hip, what's cool. What, this has been a story since way back, since way, mm-hmm. way back, you know, Harlem Renaissance, stuff like that. You know, if you were a New Yorker in 1920 and you wanted to hear some music that was on the cutting edge, if you want to have some experience that was visceral, that that made you feel more alive. I mean, uh, there there is something to that, is there not? Uh, that black people move through the world, speaking broadly, not one by one, every single person, but speaking broadly, move through the world with a different rhythm, with a with a different step, mm-hmm. uh, with a different walk, mm-hmm. you know, with a different talk. Mm-hmm. You know, look at what hip hop has done to uh, everything. I mean, it's 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 everywhere. It's the beat, the et cetera. This is what makes American culture, not only African American culture, so interesting and so so distinct uh, within the context of the Western cultural matrix. So yeah. the drum, the drum, the beat, the rhythm, the you know, jazz, jazz music, improvisation, spontaneity. Not within some rigid frame, but giving voice to the spirit. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, people have seen it who've come in, you know, from uh, Tocqueville uh, on uh, to uh, observe American uh, culture and society. They've seen the unique contribution that the the African American mm-hmm. uh, uh, 
you know, essence uh, has mm-hmm. contributed here. So uh, we don't want to completely ignore that, do we? Can't ignore it. But I think that there is a tacit idea among a lot of people that authentic blackness means that you stick with that. I think there's a very interesting question being posed as to whether we can just say that black people are going to be these people with rhythm, these people who don't deal in exactness, these people who are holistic, these people who can create hip hop, but it's going to be the white people who invent glasses and you know transistors, et cetera. But black people are good the way they were before the enlightenment. You know, the idea is that the way we were as Africans, why don't we just preserve that? We'll cherry pick the things that whites invented because you can't, of course, it's good that there are glasses, that there is glass, for example. But no, blackness means we're not going to get the real answers that, you know, we're not going to have standardized tests, that people are not going to be ranked on the basis of something, um, something that comes from these standardized tests. And I think that it needs to be posed as a question rather than seeping into our thinking without being questioned. Because the idea definitely seems to be Charlie Parker, yes, but Lord forbid that a black person also learn how to do calculus or be expected to, unless they're peculiar and that's the way that they really want to go. And it um it makes me extremely uncomfortable. Um, I have to bring up Ibram Kendi, he has a passage, I think it's my least favorite passage of his, which is that maybe we should rank black students on their desire to know. That's coming from this well, the idea that somebody saying, I would like to know this is enough. And we have to remember that Kendi writes that in all seriousness, in books that are being read by, you know, possibly billions of people. This doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me at all. And it's something related is um, the idea that music theory, that music theory that is based on hierarchy and some notes being more important than others, is somehow white and also racist. And that that kind of music theory shouldn't be taught as the basics of anything, that it shouldn't get disproportionate attention in the teaching of music. That's something that a very bright very intelligent, very insightful black musicologist has proposed. But once again, some of it, in some of this, I detect the idea that in that precision is alien to good people. And I don't like it. Okay. Um, I have to give voice to a, an ugly uh, thought here, which is that, if you look at the assessments of the um, functioning, intellectual functioning of young Americans, the National Assessment of Educational Progress comes to mind. Uh, it's a test that's administered uh, annually to uh, a sample of uh, American students in the fourth, eighth, and twelfth uh, grades, and the results are reported uh, by the Department of Education. Um, and it shows huge disparities by race in the uh, fraction of students who have acquired um, basic proficiency or advanced proficiency in mathematics and reading. And African-Americans come out on the short end of the stick. I don't have the tables in front of me, but they would be easy to find. Um, we're talking about uh, the majority of African-American students performing below basic proficiency for their age grade level in the testing of uh, on mathematical uh, aptitude performance. 
ability to solve problems. Isn't that what's really going on here? That for reasons that we could spend a long time trying to explore as a population, Black kids aren't doing so well in terms of acquiring mathematical proficiency. That is manifesting itself in a number of different ways, including on these national uh, assessment tests that I just mentioned, but also in more rarefied environments when it comes to selecting people for programs of study, when it comes to gifted and talented, when it comes to advanced placement classes, when it comes to getting into universities that are, when it comes to majoring in the STEM subjects where we see African-Americans underrepresented. So the stark fact of differences by race in the acquisition of the functional capacity to master certain skills, uh, that stark fact calls out for some kind of account, so some kind of narrative. How can we explain it? Uh, and what better than to wrap oneself in the warm blanket of uh, anti-racist outrage? What better than to denounce the entire corpus uh, that your people are not mastering by saying that it's somehow alien to or, in fact, repressive of the essence of your people? This is an avoidance of the reality of underdevelopment. Differences in, on the whole, not every single individual, differences in populations and their acquisition of human functioning capacities. That is a tremendous challenge. And one avoids the uh, unbearable weight of facing that challenge and the uncertainty and insecurity associated with taking up the challenge by basically ignoring it, pretending that it doesn't exist, saying it's an artifact of some mystical, structural, racist social order, diverting teachers from actually doing what they need to do to equip the kids so that they do better on the test by denying the reality of the test, this kind of thing. That's the ugly thought that I can't help but entertain here. And it's racist. That's where I'm going with this. It seems to betray a lack of confidence in the capacities of our people to actually do what everybody else in the world, by the way, in the world, go to China, find out what they teach, how they go to Pakistan for crying out loud, go to Ceylon, uh, Sri Lanka and find out what they're teaching there. Those kids are learning mathematics. But the descendants of African slaves here in the rich and powerful uh, uh, country of the United States of America, with every opportunity, are going to be presumed a priori not to be capable, because that's, in effect, what you're saying. We can't cut it. You're trying to change the name of the game, but what you're really saying is we can't cut it. That's racist. You know, I, I can't improve on that much because yeah where this starts really is people who look at those disparities and they figure that maybe a creative and frankly easier way of dealing with them is to say well why should black people be like white people in those regards anyway we're going to have our own standards and we're going to call them equal rather than lesser that's a nervy idea that's an interesting idea 
People have been putting it forth in various venues, I think, for the past 50 years. I've never seen it really go over. It's never put convincingly beyond what would make a certain contingent of education, grad students and professors applaud. Beyond that, and some sociologists often, beyond that, it never really attains any purchase because I don't think anybody really believes it, or at least anybody who's given to really thinking things over, both intellectually and morally. And it's a problem because the truth is, um, and I don't know if this is the truth, but I highly suspect it's the truth. Your performance on things like that, as we've discussed here before, is partly because of very subtle but powerful aspects of conditioning during childhood, where you're taught what matters, what doesn't, what bears thinking about, what doesn't, what is us, what is them, how children are spoken to in terms of being lent the problem-solving mindset, whether children are allowed to ask questions, how they're allowed to talk to adults. I am sure, I don't know, but I'm sure that 50 years from now, we will understand why there is that gap that you're talking about. And I highly feel in my gut that it's about what it is to be raised black, even often if you are middle class or above. It's a subtle cultural factor that means that a kid, even as young as six or seven, is going to have a different attitude towards the monotony of learning times tables than Abigail, the white girl next door. I highly suspect that's what it is, partly because I have grown up so much as a black kid and then black adult with one foot in and one foot out. I've known Abigail very well. I've known black kids very well. I've been watching this in Montessori schools. I watched it throughout my childhood. My Both of my Montessori schools were ones where when I look back, especially the second one, um, I don't know what the details were, but it's clear that black kids were brought in from working class communities on some sort of fellowship arrangement with the idea being that they would benefit from being around more middle-class kids. There were various black kids and especially one of my Montessori schools where looking back, knowing what they were like, and, you know, I knew them, I tended to know them better than a lot of the white kids. Their parents couldn't have had the money to pay for it. There was some sort of arrangement and great, but I used to watch a lot of them and the Montessori thing didn't work for most of those kids because they had a different attitude towards doing schoolwork. It wasn't about intelligence. It was that they were, I hate to say this, but they were from black homes. It probably would have been the same if they were working class white, but there weren't any of them. Right. And so that was there. They needed to be taught harder. They needed one of these charter schools where everybody is made to sit down and yes, raise their hand. And, you know, those schools very often do very well. You need to teach those kids harder because their home environments, even if they aren't pathological, it's subtler things about the home environment, haven't prepared them to drift into nerdiness as easily as an Asian kid or a white kid. I think that's what it is. But we can't explore any of those things if we have very responsible people walking around and saying black kids shouldn't be expected to work hard in school anyway, or pretending that to be a spunky person is an achievement, that to be a person who values community is somehow the same achievement as somebody who is working with calculus, as somebody who is writing articles, as somebody who's doing interesting things by the time they're 20. It's a lot of fakeness, it's a lot of mendacity, as Tennessee Williams has it in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Although I think a lot of people now are really thinking that, I mean, some people are so culturally balkanized. I mean, many people even, you know, who have come quite far in life that I think they really may think that, you know, sitting around being holistic and approximating answers and being spontaneous and I guess listening to hip hop, that all of that is the equivalent of this stuff that white kids do. And 
it's not. <laughs> and here we are. Uh, it's a problem. I just want to pick up or underscore two things that come out of the last comment for me that you made. One is class, class. What was the education of the parents? How chaotic is the home? What's going on in the community? This is pedagogically relevant. This is something to which I should think an instructor of youngsters would want to adapt his or her uh, pedagogical framework to, to accommodate, to accommodate what the child is bringing into the classroom with him or her. And mainly that's going to be the social position, the resources available, the experiences that are outside of the school, but that affect the kid's development. That's class. That's not race. Those experiences are mainly about the resources available, the um, the how adept the parents are, what their vocabulary is, how much time they spend reading to the kid. Does the kid know her numbers and her shapes before she gets to the kindergarten, this kind of thing. Nothing wrong with taking that into account, but it's not white supremacy that's the enemy here. The enemy here is the disadvantages associated with marginality, low resources, and poorly uh, equipped parents to supplement what the school is doing for the kids. So you're missing the mark to the extent that you racialize this. Missing the mark for the uh, poor white kids who might also need to have their special concerns uh, attended to, uh, but also missing the mark by racializing it. The other thing I just want to say is this is math that we're talking about. It's universal. I mean, the, the thing about it is, is that the, the theorem two plus two equals four is true everywhere and all the time. It transcends the particularity of our social location. So while you may need to take on board some aspects of the youngster's social situation, we teach, for example, in English and not in French because they're English speaking, et cetera. So we are adapting to some degree to the, to the social given. The goal is to open them to uh, perceive the universality of the truths that are at that are at stake. They're, these are not identitarian matters that we're dealing with here. These are human matters that we're dealing here in the purest sense of the term. There's no largest prime number. Okay. So there's a theorem. There is no largest prime number. That's true everywhere, all the time. People from another planet will be able to understand if you can find a way of conveying it to them, what you're talking about when you say there's no largest prime number. That's just incredibly powerful, it seems to me, about what is transcending our social particulars. And kids ought to be pointed toward that, toward the, the beauty, the universality, and, and so on. Euclid is still relevant today. God only knows what Euclid had for breakfast. You, you know what <laughs> I mean? You know, what, what, what Bible or what, what uh, sacred text he worshipped, uh, you know, I, I don't care about that. What I, what I care about is that the sum of the angles of a triangle is 180 degrees. That's what I care about. Unless we're doing non-Euclidean geometry, which is stepping outside the box. But again, that's not an ethnic move. That's not a cultural move. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's an ideational move that every person can aspire to grasp and comprehend and make their own, make it their own. So, yeah. There, there's this uh, famous uh, quote from uh, Saul Bellow, uh, the late uh, great uh, author, 
he said something in rebuttal of the anti-Western culture types. He said, uh, when the Zulu produce a Tolstoy, I will read oh, it. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and when, you know, which, which, which is horrible, which is horrible. When the Zulu produce, you know, you sneer down your nose at the Zulu. They don't have a Tolstoy, but when they produce one, I'll read him. How big and open-minded of you. To which my answer is, wait a minute, Tolstoy was already mine. What, what are you talking about when the Zulu produced one? They, there's already a Tolstoy. Mm-hmm. War and Peace, Anna Karenina. There's already a Tolstoy. Why does it have to be a Zulu Tolstoy? I'm a black man in the West. Tolstoy is already mine. That's the antithesis of this mentality that we're that we're criticizing here about math education. Well, you know, the hard thing there, Saul Bellow is an interesting case because because of that comment, roughly, and a couple of unpleasant passages with uh, with a seamy black man and his sexual anatomy and Mr. Somler's planet. A lot of people just, you know, if you're a good black person, you have to hate Saul Bellow. And the question is, you know, Zulu oral literature is pretty fantastic, but because it wasn't based on the written medium, it was impossible. It is impossible for any oral literature to acquire the degree of layered complexity of a war and peace of uh, the Dean's December, of an Augie March. You can't do this if you don't have writing. And some groups in the world develop writing faster than others for reasons that Jared Diamond very nicely explains. It happens that people below the equator didn't happen to have the climate that would create that kind of society. And so as far as I'm concerned, to the extent that there is no Zulu Tolstoy, it has nothing to do with the mental capacities of the Zulu. It has to do with the fact that writing is a very peculiar thing that came along very late. And of course, it didn't happen everywhere on the globe at the same time. Now the Zulus have got it, but you know, Tolstoy got it sooner. And so it's just, it's just a matter of that. The Zulu issue is to me not a matter of ranking. It was about the Zulu, writing. But the answer is, about the answer the is also word. not to say that a Zulu folk song is the equivalent of war and peace. It's not. But the reason for that is not that black people aren't smart. It's about climate. And geography, which I've always found very interesting. But in order to understand it, you have to read Jared Diamond's book. And Jared Diamond is white, and the book is 400 pages long. And I get the feeling some people today would say, well, no, no, you're supposed to be reading James Baldwin. You're supposed to be reading Alice Walker. You're not supposed to read that white book. But that white book tells some things about the universal truth of the human condition that somebody of any color should be exposed to, just like with Euclid. I don't know. Yeah. Well, why don't we move on to something else, John? Uh, you want to talk about uh, what the insurrection of January 6, 2021 mm. at the capital of the United States of America meant and what it didn't mean. A lot of people are asking why we care so much about these things, why we are fighting against the excesses of wokeness so much out of an idea that this seismic development in our intellectual, moral and artistic culture is mere static compared to the threat to Republic posed by, for example, the kinds of people who would invade the Capitol, the kinds of people who are making violent statements online and threatening to gather to take their country back. The idea is that that's more important than all of these things going on on the hard left. I disagree. I think that um, at 
best, we can say that um, at, at least we can say that these things are equally problematic. And I find it interesting. Would the French have a conversation where the idea would be that a conversation among the intelligentsia about a threat to intellectual, artistic and moral culture is trivial? In France, I don't think they would say, oh, who cares about that? What's more important is these violent things happening among these people over here. There'd be no question. To me, what's going on in our intellectual, artistic, and moral culture is us. I wonder if it's almost the American anti-intellectualism that has some people saying that all of that is just a tempest in a teapot. And what we really need to think about is some people who had some guns and Confederate flags who ran up the steps of the Capitol building. What do you you think about that? Um. I'm not sure why we have to compare and choose. That's one thing I want to say. They're both bad. Why, why, why is it necessary for me to say one is worse or less than the other? Um, I think that if I were into the comparison business, I wouldn't be comparing wokeness. I wouldn't be comparing wokeness with, um, uh, with uh, right-wing militias and um, insurrectionists. I'd be comparing the rioters in uh, the summer of 2020 in the post-George Floyd environment with the insurrectionists. Those are things that I see on a similar plane. I, I see the threat to civil order. I, I see violence. Um, I, I see the potentiality of that spilling over into a much wider set of uh, violent conflicts. So that would be my concern. I wouldn't be so concerned about what's going on on the college campus. I'd be concerned about uh, the security and person and property of people who live in cities that people decide that they're going to set a, uh, set a flame. And I'd be asking the question, why are you focused on what happened on January 16th to an excessive extent? Let's hunt them all down. Let's find out who they were. Let's make sure it doesn't happen again. Let's harden the target, but let's be ready. And uh, given the um, uh, experiences that we've had with urban uh, civil disturbance on behalf of uh, racial equities, uh, at least initially motivated by that, you seem to be less concerned about that threat to civil order. That's a point that I would want to try to push. Um, As far as the um, cancel culture stuff, uh, I take your point. If you really cared about our intellectual life, when you see people seizing uh, podiums at universities, uh, discrediting people because they've uh, enunciated ideas that are unpleasant to you, uh, teaching courses that you think are wrongheaded uh, and you want to have them canceled, um, you, you know, you're, you're threatening the integrity of something that's really very precious, these institutions of higher education that we that we value these cultural institutions. We would want to try to avoid uh, having them denigrated like that. And maybe it does say something about anti-intellectualism in the society as a whole, that that kind of threat doesn't, uh, doesn't generate more resistance. Makes me nervous. I, um, I did a, I'm, it's, I guess I am plugging it. I did a Substack piece on this and quite a few people were quite dismissive of the idea that, um, it's that there is a threat. I put it as that what institutions is the violent right taking over? So we have this extreme left contingent that is taking over, that is muzzling major institutions, making people pretend to believe things that they don't. 
And you just, you know, you see the dominoes falling every day. Now, a lot of people misinterpreted me as asking what institutions has the right taken over as if, you know, as if I don't know that they are conservative led institutions. I meant the violent right. So they do the things that they do. But the question is, are they taking over institutions in an equivalent way? Who is marching to their tune now who weren't around, say, June 2020? And I guess you can make an argument that there is a sanctioning of people like that among certain Republican politicians. Maybe they sanction those sorts of people. Maybe their sanction of those sorts of people is more prominent now, rings more loudly now, especially because of the whole Trump situation. I could go with that, but I don't think that that is as resonant or ultimately, I'm not sure it's as significant as our intellectual, moral and artistic culture being turned upside down by people whose modus operandi is to shout people down and call them names and therefore to make them pretend to believe what they believe. And so, yeah, I found I I find the response to all this very interesting. But I should say my question is not what institutions are conservative. I'm I'm awake. I'm talking maybe not woke, but awake. I'm talking about hard left versus violent right. Who has more influence now? I think it's the hard left. Well, what people are going to say, I think, is uh, they're going to point to Antifa, which is the the mm-hmm. boogeyman. That's the bugbear. That's what uh, the, the conservatives always point out. And they're going to say Antifa is a, a bunch of anarchists. It's true. But if you compare them to the well-organized right-wing militias uh, that are armed and that are uh, ideologically focused and, and that are um, uh, are there and have been there, uh, they're nothing compared to uh, to the right wing. Uh, I don't know what the FBI files would show, but I wouldn't be at all surprised that um, you know security uh, agencies spend much more time uh, of necessity keeping track of and following right wing, mm-hmm. potentially violent uh, neo Nazi, uh, white supremacist, racist. Um, uh, various gatherings uh, than they do following uh, extreme leftists. I'm, they both are going to be on their screen. I don't know. We could try to find it out, but I'd be at, not at all surprised to find out that the perception of the threat, just magnitude of the threat. Uh, there was, for example, that federal building that got blown up in Oklahoma City, uh, killing a large number of people, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, these people are very well armed. They They are you know, paramilitary. They are uh, ubiquitous. You find them in every state. Uh, Again, this is not something I know a lot about, except just from reading the newspaper, you can get a sense of it. So I think the, it was the, uh, what January 6th revealed was, um, and, and the chatter all around it, what led up to it, the energy that went into it, uh, what it revealed was how how widely extensive is this world from which some of the right wing violence might emerge. Most of the people, of course, who came out to rally and supported Trump were not uh, violent uh, insurrectionists. They they were people who came out to rally in favor of Trump. Uh, but in their midst uh, and behind them, uh, there, there's a lot of very troubling stuff that's going on. Um. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with you that the influence of the woke crowd, we just got through giving an example. They want to teach our kids anti-racist mathematics. 
you know, this this kind of thinking is, you know, insinuating itself everywhere. Uh, that is problematic. In every state. But like I say, <laughs> I don't have to choose. I don't have to, you know, I'm going to pay attention to one threat and not the other threat. I think we can we can manage to comprehend both at the same time. I think I think just possibly our view is distorted by the fact that we we now seem to have become kind of a clearinghouse for cases like this. It's like I feel like we're Walter Winchell, you know, do with the gossip. You know, anything like this that happens, we're gonna hear about it. And you know, it's like I'm sure you're getting it's like six or seven things a day. Well here's, here's and it's clear idea. that something is afoot. You yes, know. indeed. Um and I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, John. I, I just want to seize on this thought which is maybe we should be more systematic in how it is that we catalog and follow up on some of these concerns. And maybe we should use some of the support that those who are supporting the Glenn and John show um, are having generous enough to offer to, to try to get some staff to help us manage. I'm not kidding. I've got so many people sending me memorandums, sending me documents, writing two page long letters describing their situation, telling me that their life is being destroyed, that they want a lawyers. I've got people writing me, tell me, can I refer them to a lawyer so that they can protect their rights? Stuff like I can't handle it. I'm overwhelmed by it. But as we become a kind of focal point for this concern, a systematic, uh, you know, processing of this kind of thing and uh, even just communicating back to people, I can't respond. I, I can't respond to all properly to all these things. So I don't know what you think about that idea that, that we need to set up a little, little program, hire somebody 20 hours a week or whatever it is to help us uh, process this stuff. And- you know, that it's, it's actually, and folks, this is not staged. We have not talked about this until now. Not at all. This actually makes sense because it's at the point where I do read it all because I find it interesting. It's like we're, we're in living history. I read every one of them. I can't answer every one of them at this point, um, especially the ones where they're really expecting us to like really reach out and lend personal assistance, although I understand where it's coming from. But I keep every one of them. And it's gotten to the point that I get up a half hour earlier so I can read through all of it because I can't get through it during the day. But I want to know what these people have to say. And yeah, I'm a one-man band mostly. I, I like to do it all myself, but... It's at the point where I have been now and then thinking, I think I'm one of those people who needs an assistant. And a lot of it would be that. Yeah, somebody who would actually sort all of this stuff by the type of case that it is, whether it's an academic, whether it's K-12, whether it's college, whether it's a corporation, because it really now is a great deal of stuff. I started keeping this. It's always when somebody makes me mad. Last summer, I said, people are beginning to write me all the time about this problem in academia. And I have this one professional detractor who wrote, oh, really? People are writing you all the time. I don't believe it. And something about the tone of this one person, this is an unusual person among people who don't like me. She's she's interesting. And I thought, damn it, damn it, I'm going to prove it. And that's when I started trumpeting this and keeping my file of all of these um, all of these mails. I had no idea it would get as big as it has. But yeah, something's afoot. And I know that you know, the, the riotous, violent right is afoot too. But I wonder what institutions are they taking over? They do what they do, but who is marching to their tune other than them? And I would be more worried about them if they were taking over in 
that way. And there's a part of me, and maybe I'm missing something here. Maybe, maybe I'm missing something, but Emmett Till was not killed by a hate group. Emmett Till was killed by some, some guys and everybody in the community supported them, including their wives. It was just the way things were. Now people who have ideologies kind of like that, although not exactly the same. Now they're a hate group. They have a website. They hide. They meet in places and you know, only let out slowly exactly who they are. That means that we're in a different situation than we were in in 1955. So I see the hate groups. Okay, I know that they have proliferated lately. Social media has a way of doing that to things. But I always think to myself, these people who are now a hate group used to be just people. And it wasn't all that long ago. It used to be that that's what white people, especially in the South, would at least countenance. That was a default kind of person. Now it's a fringe. I've never quite gotten past that, although maybe I'm not paying enough attention to the fact that there are more of them and what that might mean. I don't know. No, I think you actually are making an interesting point. The very fact that they have to constitute themselves as a group, that they have to organize into, uh, you know, uh, these uh, uh, collectives that uh, secretly share their thoughts and their ideas and whatnot, suggests that they're marginal within the larger social framework. Mm-hmm. When everybody was uh, basically on the same page about uh, racism, the racists did not need to segregate themselves off and have a have an mm-hmm. identity and a secret sign and a and a, a, a you know chat room or whatever. Uh, yeah. They were they were simply there. Mm-hmm. So things have changed uh, dramatically in that respect, without doubt. Yeah. So, hmm. what else we got? I think that might be it for today, Glenn. I'm okay with that. I think we've done about an hour. And so, yeah, we have... let's find out what questions and comments we get on this one. <laughs> All right. Um, and uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks, and uh, we are going to do a monthly Q&A response. We did one um, uh, a week ago or so, the 15th of the month, roughly, so two weeks ago. Um, and uh, we look forward to continuing to interact with folks out there who enjoy the conversation between Glenn and John. So, Indeed. Signing off for now. Have a good one, folks.